Well, 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 it is, uh, it's back to school Sunday here at Grace Covenant Church. And when I was thinking about what we could talk about today, I, I, again, I felt like this is a time of year where we, some, it's like a January 1st, New Year's resolutions, those sorts of things. I have two purposes for our time together today. One is just to look at three conditions of the human soul and have an honest evaluation. Each of us take a spiritual inventory and see where we are, what chair we're going to sit in. And then the second part is a bit of an introduction to Grace Covenant Church. Uh, I understood when I, I was told when I got back that we have a lot of people visiting here. I know a number of you have moved here from out of state and you're looking for a church. How's, how's your summer so far? <laughs> this is blistering heat. I, I'm ready to move out of here. I've been here 40 years. Wow. Uh, welcome to Austin. Um, Anyway, I thought I would remind some of you that go here and are members here and then inform some of you that are relatively new about what we do and why we do it and then literally how we do it and how you might get involved. And you'll see how these two parts actually overlap. So part, part, I'm sorry, for, so for part one, we're looking at the conditions of the human soul. And this comes from observations uh, from a class I took a number of years ago at Boston College. It was a night class on the meaning of life. And we studied various geniuses throughout what we had 4,000 years of wisdom, six different languages. This particular talk I enjoyed from what I learned from a scholar named Siren Kierkegaard, and it talks about the different stages of a person's life or conditions of a human soul. And we that overlapped with a lot of Bible information about conditions of the human soul. And so I'm just going to define these three conditions. I want you to think, where would you sit? That's how it's going to end. There's a test at the end. And what you're going to do about that. Okay? So let me we start right here with the first chair. And I'm going to call this committed chair. This is a person who has a surrendered commitment to Jesus Christ. This is a person, it's a, if you look at the chair itself, it's a simple chair, it's very portable, it's Spartan. And it's, it's to emulate this. It's, just, it's somewhat of a, not a simplistic faith, but it's a simple way of looking at God and their relationship with God, that Jesus Christ is their king. And that means that he has absolute authority over their life. And the person that is in this chair, this committed chair, the, the, the marrow of their soul runs rampant with joy and appreciation for being an heir to this great king. Joy and happiness and gratitude is what drives this person. And their purpose in life is somewhat simple. Not simplistic, but it's simple. One, it is to have a progressively deepening, intimate, loving relationship with the God of the Bible, Yahweh. In this life, all into eternity, knowing him more. And the second one, second purpose that they live with is to become like Christ in all of life. To glorify God by becoming in the image of what they were meant to be. This is a person that enjoys the energy of serving the king. And that the chair is, is, is it, it's to show that this person is not calling this life their home. They're foreigners here. They're just passing through. They, 
They serve a greater kingdom, an eternal kingdom, whose author and designer is God himself. And so they live a life like they're tourists. And how do you pack as a tourist? You pack light. You're just passing through. That's the committed person. This one is a comfortable person. A person lives for their personal comfort. That's their value. Whatever makes their soul or body feel good, however they want to define that. Sometimes people that want to live comfortably live an exciting life, and they're adventurous, and living for the next adrenaline buzz, sometimes it means just, I want to be lazy and fat like a cat. That's me. They make decisions based on whatever makes them feel safe or excited or whatever it might be. Now, the reason I went from chair number one to chair number three is because they're consistent with their values. I mean, this person has answers to no one and has no ultimate authority, and this one has God as their ultimate authority, and they live consistently like this. The second chair is compromised, and I would maybe even use the word conflicted, because they're trying to live both somehow. And if you look at the chair itself, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's neither efficient and it's not comfortable. If you've had one of these chairs, they're good for nothing. <laughs> this chair is a, like a futon chair. You remember futons? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of us owned a futon because you know what a futon is? It's a couch. It's a bed. And then you bought it and it was neither. And then you hated both of it, right? And so you gave it to a friend, and you could only give it to a friend that hadn't had a futon yet. And then they gave it to a friend, and then we ran out of people that have had a terrible futon experience. We put them on the curb for big trash pickup, and those guys wouldn't even pick it up. Like, this thing doesn't deserve to even be thrown away because it was neither. It was a terrible couch. It was a terrible bed. Just choose one or the other. This is a futon Christian. It's like you get in one or the other, just choose. This person, actually, this futon Christian comes in two different flavors. There's one that that gravitates towards this and sometimes looks like a committed follower of Christ because extreme ethics, but mostly they're very disciplined people. They're legalistic is the point. They're not in a relationship with God in a loving way. He's just you know, they're, they're just dutiful. And their legalism allows them to be able to control. They control their own life. They like to control other people's lives. And they like to, honest, they like to control God. That if they do their part, then God is obliged to do his part. Sometimes uh, they, they, they do this. They're, they're not filled with joy, I can tell you. They're usually filled with judgment. Because of that, they're usually angry, and anger sometimes is looking, is, it looks like depression because the control thing is really hard to hold on to. And when you're busy judging others and judging yourself and, and even judging God because he's not playing according to this person's rules, it makes the person angry. No joy, just frowns. And then there's, there's a part of the camo futon I'm sorry, the futon Christian that looks this way towards, you know, the comfortable, and they're, they're the ca- camouflage Christian. 
You can't tell them apart from this group of people. This person goes to church on Sunday. They probably, maybe, who knows, only God knows if they really sincerely trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But they're living like this because ultimately in the war between surrendering to God and surrendering to their own comforts, whenever it gets difficult, they're going to go towards comfort. And they're going to just live with vocabulary in Jesus' speak, but not live that life. This is a miserable chair to live in. Because this person has this continual, slow, and constant drip of, of guilt and regret. Futon Christian <laughs> chews. <laughs> it's a terrible place to live. Those are conditions, generally speaking, speaking of the soul. And what I'd like to do now is look at an outline where it says, okay, how do these three relate to God? And then I'll look at how do they choose values uh, and ethics. How, how they relate to God, the, the committed, chair one, the, this person has a, a morning ritual quite often. And it, and it goes like this. It's based on a loving, intimate, progressively intimate relationship with the triune God of the Bible and says, what should we do today? I'm here to enjoy living my life with you. This person can pray regularly. I will go anywhere to do anything with anyone at any time. And looks forward to answers from God himself to be part of that. This, this person is doing whatever the, he or she needs to do to enjoy comfort of being with God. This person, their relationship with God is an acquaintance. The legalist, the one that's leaning this way, it's a distant boss that meets daily with a checklist of things to do. This is a, 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 a person's spiritual condition is working for God, getting stuff done. And again, most of the time it's in the context of control because if you do the right things, you know, the legalism, the rules of the law, the letter of the law, they don't know the spirit of the law because you have to know the writer of the law. They just know the letter, the, the do's and the don'ts, the blacks and the whites of all of life. And it's, wow. And it's, it's so that if they can control enough and follow like the recipe then God will be obliged to keep their family and their own life safe and predictable. And this person, when they relate to God on this side, the camouflage, futon, Christian, this one looks at God and his relationship. And they'll, they'll, say, they'll say words like this, the big guy upstairs. Now, you can read the Bible from cover to cover. You're not going to see anyone even antagonists towards Yahweh have a flippant attitude like the big guy upstairs? What? No. This person looks at, at God like he's a grandfather, not a father trying to help them become like Christ, but a grandfather that's out to spoil them. And, and God forgives, hey, he's going to blend in and do these things and practice sin regularly because you know what? That's what God does. He forgives. This person in his relationship with God, let me say this again, it's, it's, it's living a paradox 
of the transcendent and eminent nature of God. In other words, he's, he's almighty and great, and yet he's local and intimate. It'd be, it would be like having, if you were the daughter of General Dwight D. Eisenhower, and if, if that, that man had, for a, a number of years, power and authority and respect as he was the supreme commander of all the allied forces during World War II. And if he had a daughter, I don't know, but if he had an eight-year-old daughter, she could climb up into his lap and tell her about the happiest moment of her day as a little eight-year-old and the things that made her cry, and he would be attuned to that. And as a 28-year-old, she could still climb into the lap of General Dwight D. Eisenhower on a particularly bad day and put her head on her father's shoulder and weep. It's an interesting dynamic in the Bible that we talk about the greatness and the grandeur of the great creator, but also the savior that became man so that we might have a co-reigning relationship with him. That's how they relate to God. I want to look at like, how they find value, how these different states of the soul find value and ethics. <clears throat> this person... In the committed, let's talk about that person again. The committed looks at the Bible as the absolute authority on the nature of God and who he is and how that person, how we're supposed to live our lives. And so when the Bible says about how to dress, that person will dress accordingly. And it's like, what sorts of things should we use for entertainment? I will submit to that. Here's the key. Why? Why would a person be in such subjection to the Bible and its values and ethics? Because they know that the king that they serve is a good, good king. He's a benevolent leader and owner of our souls. And this person knows whatever they would that the king would have them do, wherever they would have them go, to be with whatever people, whomever they are to be with, it would be good for our soul and for the kingdom of God that they serve. And knowing that, they look at the passages in the Bible that say, you know what? Chair one people should only date chair one people because chair one people should only marry chair one people. And so they would rather be lonely than compromise because he's a good, good father. And wants what's good for us. That's where this person finds its ethics. Uh, this person finds it, well, again, they're torn and twisted uh, about what to do. The legalist is following the details of the law but not knowing why and not enjoying obedience. This person, it, literally there's a passage in the Bible that says obedience is not cumbersome. And the reason obedience is not cumbersome is because love is the single most enslaving motive that a human can experience. Let me say that again. Love is the most enslaving motive in the human experience. Have you ever loved someone, hopefully, that you would give your freedom to them? I will do anything you want me to do because of my love for you. Love motivates this. This person knows no love 
to this acquaintance and distant, in this case, distant boss. So they might be looking and then living this life, but it's, it's out of duty and it's out of an obligating God to do what he promised he didn't, but what he would do because I did my things. This person, when they find their ethics and their values, they will obey up until the point of it interrupting my primary values of being comfortable. So certainly I will do what the Lord calls me to do until it causes me to be embarrassed in front of my friends, mocked at work or school, keep me from my ambitions to become the owner of the corner office or whatever it might be. So in the, in the war that's happening in this conflicted uh, futon lifestyle, there's a war between the Lord and my ego, and most often the ego wins. And this one, their ethics and values are, well, they're simple, you know, whatever, you know, everything's relative, morality is relative, there are really very few absolutes. And in their relationship with God, the way they look at God is that God is everywhere all the time, maybe, or, you know, the new atheism, it's entirely nihilistic but still tries to find purpose in life. So that's how they, those are the conditions of, three conditions of the soul, particularly in the relationship with God. That's how they relate to God. That's how they find ethics in life. In the Bible, just to be clear, in the, in the Bible, there's names for them. In the, the first one over here, nowadays we would call this, call this committed disciple or a follow, a dedicated follower of Christ. In the Bible, this is called a carnal Christian. Now, that's, those are church words. Let me describe. Carnal is a word that literally means flesh or, yeah, flesh right, or meat. Right? And, and it's, a, it's an oxymoron. And they're, they're showing a carnal Christian is showing the conflict here by saying carnal means flesh, earthly, temporal, and Christian means eternal and spiritual. So it's trying to live this carnal, spiritual, flesh, spirit life, and it doesn't work. The the futon Christian, it's like, choose one or the other. Come on. And the Bible, so it calls that a devoted follower. This is a carnal Christian, and this one, the Bible just says a non-believer. And vocabulary that will be used in the Bible will either be lost or their soul is dead to God. There's examples throughout the Bible that put people in different uh, chairs of the condition of their soul. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament United Kingdom period for the uh, fall teaching time. And we're going to look at particularly the life of David because David finds himself in this committed chair. He's going to get a nickname or a tagline for his experience and it'll say, David, a man after God's own heart. God calls him that. That's David. That's a man after my own heart, he says. He gives birth to a son, his Solomon, this is a generational decline, Solomon, his son, will have a divided heart. He'll have that war between trying to follow Yahweh like his father did and following his own ego, and it's conflict after conflict, and he leaves a ruinous experience for the nation of Israel and in his own life as well. 
the worst chair ever. And then he has a son who becomes king, and his name is Rehoboam. There's little or no evidence that Rehoboam has a spiritual life. Trying to use examples that you might know from the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, there's a, a, a wonderful story that many of you know called the prodigal son. The prodigal son, there's two prodigals actually, but the youngest son right here, he's comfortable. He's going to live a, a, a sensual life. He's gonna, he just wants to live for love and excitement and physical pleasure and he will spend his father's money to make that happen. It's dreadful in his experience. Then there's an older brother in the story that is over on, he's, it's leaning this way. He's a legalist and he literally in a story is enraged by his father's forgiveness and generosity. Because, you know, the, the prodigal son, when he returns, shouldn't get gifts of forgiveness and generosity. And he has done the right thing, and so his father owes him grace. Owes him grace? And then the third committed would be the prodigal son having come to his senses and returns. He just wants to be on his father's ranch, just shoveling manure, because he would love that. And when his father greets him and restores him to full sonship with a robe and a ring and sandals, he will live out his entire experience wanting to know the love of his father like he never has before, and he will be intrinsically motivated forever on joy and gratitude for his salvation because he was once lost and now he's found. He was once dead and now he's alive and he will live a committed life. You know those stories? That's what it looks like. Now it's time for the test. Boy, if we had time, I would lock these doors and I would have you guys come up and have a seat. We'll start with my wife, Melinda. <laughs> I'm watching. Um, <clears throat> But we don't have time for that, but we, you know what we do have time for is, hey, why don't you tell someone that you met during our meet and greet time what chair you'll sit in? Why don't we stand up and do that for a second? No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> I would have done that the week I left for vacation, not the week I got back. You go first. <laughs> you go first. No, no, I'm going to serve you by going last. Uh, <clears throat> not what chair you want, you're in, what chair do you want to be in? You want to be in that chair. We all want to be in that chair. If you listen to the calling on God's, uh, God's spirit to your spirit, he wants you to live here for his glory and your joy. And so we're kind of moving into part two. How do you get from chair three and chair two to chair one? And we're going to see in Deuteronomy chapter six, there's Honestly, just a, a, a simple passage. It's a passage of primary influence. It's going to be quoted throughout the Bible. And the Jews today still memorize it and quote it every day, sometimes three times a day. And it's going to tell us how. How do we, how do we get to chair one? And then while, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want, it's, it's a nice overlap in what we're doing here at this church. I want to remind some of you and I want to inform those of you that are new, this is what we're doing. Step one in getting to chair one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's how it starts. He's trying to show us we need to define the, this with a relationship, and it's a loving relationship. And it's the nature of God is to enjoy him. And you need to start this journey with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength by answering this simple question in your heart of hearts. Do you believe this to be true? That your wildest and greatest dreams, your hopes and ambitions for your life are pitiful, shallow, and worthless compared to God's plans, hopes, and dreams for your life. Do you believe that if you completely and absolutely surrendered to Him, it could take you places, having you do things, and enjoy the fullness of what it means to be human if you just did that? Do you believe that in, in 5, and 10, 50, 100 years from now, if you would just trust that he is a good, good father, that he's a benevolent king, and only wants what's great for you that glorifies him, then that will take away your fear to love him with all your heart, soul, and strength. You want to know if you believe that or not? Pray this prayer. I will go anywhere to do anything with anyone at any time. You pray that sincerely and then listen for the glitch. And if you get a glitch, like, whoa! <laughs> it means that you think that if you pray that prayer and mean it, that God Almighty will send you somewhere you don't want to go, to be with someone you can't get along with, to do something you can't stand at a very inconvenient time. And do you know why you believe that? Pause. Because it's the oldest lie in all of creation. This all started with a lie in the garden. When Adam and Eve are quite literally living in paradise, and the devil says, is he a good God? Did he leave something out? Wasn't there something more that would make life better for you? That's how it starts. That lie rattles around in every one of our souls. It's intrinsic of our bent, our sin nature, and we have help from outside. And it's because we can't get to this chair because we can't love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and strength because we don't think he's truly, absolutely, perfectly good and cannot do ill for us. And if we can check that box, we can move towards chair one in a complete sense of surrender. Anytime, anywhere, with anyone to do anything. And I can't wait to see how this ends. It'll end with the glory of God. Part one, love the Lord your God. Part two, it just goes through, and it just basically, in a few words, it means live the Bible. Now, this is on parenting, but you can parent yourself. It's, it's the way to get the ch chair one from chair 
3 and 2. Look what it says in uh, 6 through 9. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Yes, uh, sure, impress them upon your children and your life too. Here's how. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and, and bind them to your foreheads. And then write them on your door fr- the door frames of your houses and upon your gates. Look what it says. It says, teach them diligently. That's like a formal kind of teaching. That's what we do here at Grace in our courses, in the classes that we have. Formal teaching, learning what the Bible says to the original audience and, and, what that, and what that says about God and how to become like Christ in all of life. Then it says, it says we're supposed to talk about the Bible when you're going in your house, when you're going away, from, coming back from your house, when you're lying down, when you're getting up. point is, like, we're learning how to apply it in all kinds of life situations. The Bible's coming up and it's defining what is right and real and true, real time. We do that here a lot in our communities where we have age-graded classrooms so that you can go through life in stages together and look how to talk about the Bible as it's happening in real time. He says, he says walk the Bible. And the, what I mean by that is he says, tie them on on your forehead, tie them on your wrists. And you can, if you, you experience this in maybe New York City, Orthodox Jews do this, uh, and sometimes in Israel, but particularly in Jerusalem, they'll have these boxes and they'll have them tied to their head and tied to their hand. But I think there's a bigger, there's a bigger meaning to it than literally doing that. It's, it's think biblically, do biblically, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the Bible, and then give your bodies as a living sacrifice to Him, and then all that you do with that flesh is in a reflection of obedience to a good and godly king. And then finally, I think it says, brag about your Bible. It says, put them on the doorpost of your house and on your outer gate. When people walk in, they go, oh, uh, you're one of those Bible people. I am. Some of you do this literally. You put Bible verses on the side of your living room wall. Good for you. Sometimes uh, one of the ways I do it is when I, a lot of times when I have big God things that happen in my life where he is miraculously showing up, I will grab some kind of token, some kind of memory tool. And sometimes it's a rock and I've got a bearing set. It's a longer story. But anyway, they sit on my shelf and they sit on my shelf for two reasons. There's this bragging part. They help me remember in times of doubt, hey, look at all the God stories you have all around you. <laughs> and then they're attention getters. People walk in and they say, so why do you have a constant velocity bearing in your office? And I'll go, <laughs> well, I'm surprised that you would ask, but I'm glad to tell you, here's how the story goes. And God's the hero. Brag about your walk with God, with or the, the Word of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Live the Bible out in your own life. And guess what? That's what we do at Grace Covenant Church. That's why we meet. That's why we exist. Look what it says in our purpose statement. You can see it on the website. Grace exists to glorify God by guiding people to become like Christ in all of life. We're transformed by grace and biblical truth, committed to relational discipleship and engaging in ministry. What does that mean? It means we are a community of first-chair people 
trying to guide other people to become first chair people. It means that we're all believers, as all believers, we're all ministers. We're looking for people to, that God brings into our life that are chair three and chair two people, and we say, hey, I'm on a journey there. I'm trying to stay in this chair. You want to come with me? In the, in the detailed application of that purpose statement, you'll find in some of our other literature, it, this sentence, it says that grace is a regional church that worships God, equips disciples for ministry, and takes the good news of Jesus Christ into our community and into our world. I want you to see in that statement two points of emphasis. One, that we're a regional church, and I'll show what that means, and two, that we're, an equipping, we're equipping disciples for ministry. When we say in the way that we do things around here that we're a regional church, it's an acknowledgement that we're on the corner of three freeways, but it's more of an acknowledgement that we know that many of you, and even most of you, are driving several miles to get here, and that you're driving by two or three outstanding Bible teaching churches, and you're coming on Sunday. And when the leadership makes decisions here at Grace Covenant Church, we make decisions saying, look, they did their part to get here. Let's make sure it's worth it to them. Let's make sure we provide as many opportunities for a person that once they get here on campus, we can maximize their ability to move from chair three and chair two to chair one and stay in chair one by loving the Lord and living the word. And so that's why we have so many ministries that take place here at Grace Covenant Church on Sunday because there's no easier time to experience connection with other believers than on Sunday morning. We know you've made the journey in. And here's a fact of spiritual truth, that you can't get to chair one committed and stay in chair one committed if you come to church for one service and leave. That's soul physics. It can't happen. You have to have more. There are non-Sunday opportunities available to us through Grace Covenant Church, you know, midweek, daytime, morning, whatever it might be. The easiest one is Sunday morning because you could go to a community that's helping you through your stage of life. You could go to a course that helps teach formally what the Bible says about various things. Your children will be cared for depending upon their age, and they will actually be discipled during that period of time. My challenge is, this is the easiest 9 to 12.30 that's available all week long. If you're coming once and leaving, would you consider coming to both services? Come one worship time together, collective worship, and then go and enjoy one of the multiple opportunities to either serve or get involved in one of our communities or courses because it's the most convenient. We know you've come a while to get here, and we we're going to make the most of that. The second part of that little, the way we do things is we're a regional church that equips disciples. I want you to know, especially if you're new, that everyone around you is part of the discipleship process. I'm just a pastor, but what we have out here are ministers. We equip the people to do the ministry. Everybody's involved at helping guide people from chair three to chair, and chair two to chair one. We're, we're, we're a, a family, we're a community, we're a collective whole that has a single purpose, and that is to enjoy chair one living. 
And we want to be there, and we want to bring as many people with us as possible. We're not a church that says, you know, you come, you sit. Well, the pros will show you how to do it. Go back and take good notes and just go home. No, no, no. We want you involved in that process. Well, because the Bible says so. <laughs> now, today, what we have a connection event here. We're, uh, there's a word for it, I think. Connecting fair. Thank you, fair. That's a great word. Uh, we should call it that. Having a connection fair today that helps you get a, a picture of what's going on. There'll be leaders and, and pastors and volunteers throughout. Uh, it'll actually be in the old auditorium. After church, you can go through, grab some pizza on the way in. We're kind of doing pizza under the trees in 100-degree heat, so we don't want anybody to leave the building and die. Uh, we do want you to go get your children, then come back and get the pizza, and then stay indoors where everything's air-conditioned. But look at an opportunity to get involved on Sunday morning or to serve or, or to get involved in one of our courses or communities. There's some cards and some literature available that will help you understand all that's available to you. On Sunday and midweek, you can't get to chair one if you're here in an hour and 15 minutes a week. Two ministries I want to bring attention to besides, you know, again, our, our courses and our communities is men's ministry is about to fire up. It's going to start on August 27th. There's a, a thing called Man Night. It's here on campus. We're just going to eat meat and get to know people. All right. I mean, why wouldn't you want to do that? Even if you're a vegetarian, you can come and enjoy just smell it, you know, just bring it. <laughs> and then on August 29th, our women's ministry uh, starts with its Girlfriends at Grace. That's here on campus as well. It's a wonderful opportunity to meet ladies that are trying to all go through life together, get to chair one, committed life to the glory of God, enjoy him forever, and guide as many people as possible. What we're trying to do here is provide a place for you to belong. Everyone needs to belong somewhere. So why not here? Let me give you my lunch talk. This is a talk people say, hey, I'm new. I'd love to know more about the church. Can we go to lunch? And this is what the lunch talk looks like. I'll say, look, we're a big church. I'm sorry, but we, we spend a considerable amount of time trying to be small. And here's how, you get, here's how you feel the smallness and intimacy of a church as big as ours. You go somewhere and you get involved. And one of the best ways to connect with other people is to serve. There's something about serving shoulder to shoulder with someone, not kind of necessarily just being a taker, but being a giver. And you'll make friends. And maybe through all of that and the providence of God, you'll meet that, that person that you can just go through life and on this journey to this chair one with. Get involved. Go to things Find this as your village with a common goal and a common purpose, to know God and enjoy him. And then I'll say, usually if they have children, I'll say, listen, I'm going to tell you something because I've, been, I've, lived a, I've lived longer than I ever thought I would, and I've seen things, and I know a pattern. You have children, and if I were you, I would just do this. You're going to lose your primary influence in their life during their teen years. It's going to hurt. It's good and it's necessary. It's part of becoming an adult. And when you lose that influence, the primary influence will fall upon mentors and their peers. They'll do what they say. Now, what you can do, because you're obligated to God to raise your children in a godly way, what you can do 
is make sure that they're hanging around the right mentors and the right peers during that difficult time when you lose your influence. If you do nothing, their mentors will be their coach, their dance instructor, their drama leader, and their peers will be in that group of people. But if I were you, I'm not telling you how to live your life, but I'm telling you how to live your life. This is what you do. You make sure your children are on this campus by fourth grade. You make sure they're plugged in in the fourth and fifth grade for sure. They will be brought into a communal relationship with people in chair one that will mentor them and then will be their peers to make them like Christ in all of life. And if when they get to junior high and high school, I don't care if they want to come or not. I'd slow down to about three miles an hour. I'd kick them out of the car and make them go up into the loft because that whole ministry is built around this. Knowing this to be true, that their primary place of people of influence will be mentors and their peers. And they'll surround them with college and adults that love Jesus Christ as their king. And obedience is not an obligation. It is a privilege. And the sap in their soul is joy and appreciation. And you get them there in those junior high, senior high years, providing peers and mentors, you'll be glad you did. It's up to you to raise your children. This community, I think, is wanting to help. Because this value of making mentors and disciples and peers, did you know it starts in fourth grade around here? Our fourth graders help with the elementary school kids. Our junior high and high school help with our children's ministry. Like everybody's looking to help everyone that God brings them move from tier three and two to one. Join the team. I went to the youth camp this I'm sorry, God did this last Sunday, uh, last service. I went I, I got to go the last two days of youth camp. There was a lot going on uh, there, and I wanted to see how the skit ended, and I wanted to be part of the just watch the children get the teens get baptized. Oh, wow. We have a great youth program. Anyway, this one father was baptizing her his daughter, and here's what he said. This, this is Matt Zink. He's baptizing Jordan, and he said this, I am so proud. 17 years ago, we dedicated Jordan as a baby at Grace Covenant Church, 17 years ago, and it was our promise to raise her for the glory of God, being part of the church, and we promised the church would, that we would come alongside in that journey. And on that journey over 17 years, it's been a joy to be the father that watched you grow in Christ. He's talking to Jordan. And in, and, and in your faith as a person, your kindness, humility, your patience. Oh, your deep patience. We are just so proud of your journey. And then Matt said, I baptize you as your brother and your father in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I watched that. I was listening to him and I was going, he just, he just did it. Like, I want you to be the Zinc family. It's, look at all that's available. If there's a better ministry, church, youth experience in the city of Austin, go there. Do whatever it takes, whatever it costs to get to chair one as a d dedicated disciple of Jesus Christ and then bring as many people there as you possibly can. I'm asking, 
maybe this is the place for you to belong. And I'm not asking you as the pastor of a church. I'm asking you as a brother and sister, like all the other ministers all around you, we want to be part of helping you become like Christ in all of life and enjoy knowing a loving relationship with the creator of the universe and the savior of your soul. Everyone around you wants that. I ask for them. Maybe this is the place for you to belong. And maybe this is the place for you to serve. That's grace. I love this place. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we, we celebrate uh, your glory that you would be a transcendent God that is unknowable in many ways and profound and out there, and then you are imminent, you are close, and you came and became one of us so that we might enjoy an intimate relationship with the most holy God. And because of that, Lord, I'd ask that you would help us see your providence in our lives, that you've arranged good works in Jesus Christ before time in began, that we look at souls around us on our left and our right, and even in our grocery store, that we are here for a purpose. And it's to be a dedicated follower of Christ and to guide other people to be dedicated followers of Christ, that we might all become like Christ in all of life. There it is, the chief end of man. And I'd ask that you would help us play our part. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.